problems. Uh, when I was in college a number of years ago, I had been in the habit uh, as a young man to read one proverb a day. There's some really great wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And if you're wondering what you ought to read, uh, a lot of times people say, well, I want to get better at reading my Bible. And if you don't have a plan uh, of reading your scriptures, and good morning, Miss Tish. Good to see you this morning. Good to have you here. And uh, if you don't have a plan, I would encourage you to read at least a proverb a day. And you can, uh, there's 31 proverbs, so most months you can just do it on the day of the, of the month. It makes it real easy to remember where you're at. And there's a, 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 just a ton of um, uh, wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And you say, okay, well, that'll do me for a month. What do I do when I get done? Well, you go back to the beginning and you do it again. Because there is so much wisdom in the book of Proverbs that you could literally read it for a lifetime and not get all that there is in there. And uh, so I would encourage you in that. But, uh, and I was in the habit of doing that as a younger man, and that was kind of my uh, part of my regular reading schedule in the Scriptures. And uh, when I went to college, uh, one of the professors said, if you'll read one psalm a day, it'll change your life. And I took him up on it, and boy, what a blessing the psalms became to me. I mean, just just touched my heart. What a, what a joy it was to read them. And, uh, and so I encourage people to read a psalm a day. They're, most of them are fairly short. The one today has eight verses. Uh, it's not a very long psalm. And uh, some people say, well, what about Psalm 119? Well, the nice thing is on that one, they've broken it into eight verse uh, segments. And so you just read one of the, the eight verse segments of it each day, and uh, that'll be a blessing to you. And I would far rather see people, and even in my own life, I, I try to practice this, I'd rather see folks read the Bible slowly, thoughtfully, and carefully than to try to read a ton of verses in, in a day. Some people say, boy, if you read five chapters of this and three chapters of that, you can get through the Bible in a certain amount of time. I, I, I'm not in a rush. Why, why are we in a rush? Let's get something from the Bible. Let's not just read it for the sake of reading it. Uh, it is profitable to us for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And it is what God uses to grow us, to perfect us, to equip us so that we can be all that we need to be for Him. And so uh, I would charge you and encourage you. It has been such a blessing to me in my lifetime to read through the Psalms now a number of times. And every time I go through it, it is just an absolute blessing and so I would encourage you in that. Psalm 3, if you will. We're going to read all eight verses. <clears throat> Excuse me. The psalmist says this, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Exclamation point. I, I think it's important sometimes to really pay attention to the punctuation of things. This is something that the psalmist is, is just exclaiming. And you, you can almost hear the frustration the, the desperation, the depression, if you will, in his voice, the, the crying out to God. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, <coughs> there is no help for him in God, Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. 
For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people, Selah. Father, we come to you once again. We ask for the next couple of moments to give us clarity of thought in mind as we take some time to read this psalm, to learn about it, the circumstances that it was written under and penned, the heartache that David had felt during this time. And Lord, I pray that you would guide and direct our steps. May we have full understanding. <clears throat> May your Holy Spirit bring illumination to it that we can uh, understand the truth that you would have for us here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The setting of this particular psalm is in reference to the time of David's life where uh, Absalom, who is one of his dearly beloved sons, has risen up in rebellion to overthrow his father on the throne of Israel. And his desire is to become the king himself. And he has gone behind David's back, and he has um, been deceitful. He'd been very shrewd and secretive. He'd been uh, really um, diabolical in his scheme to take over the kingdom from his father. And uh, this is the background. In fact, we're going to take just a few moments here, if you don't mind. <clears throat> Hold your place in, uh, in Psalm 3. And let's turn to Second Samuel and we're going to read just briefly, kind of just to give you a little bit of a better background of, of where this uh, psalm is coming from. Second uh, Samuel chapter number 15, if you will. <coughs> Excuse me. Second Samuel chapter number 15. And uh, we're going to start in the very uh, beginning of the chapter, verse number 1. We'll read down through uh, probably in the middle of the chapter, uh, a little bit further maybe. And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. <clears throat> and, so, and it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom uh, called unto him and said, uh, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, O that I were made judge in the land, that every man that hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. In other words, he's out here undermining the very authority of his own father. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom, notice this phrase, stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it came to pass after forty years that Absalom said uh, unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode in Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. The king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then, shall, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went two hundred men out of Jerusalem that were called. 
And they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, even from uh, Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong. I want you to notice this phrase, for the people increased continually with Absalom. This is the setting that David is facing as he sits down and he pins the words for Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is easily broken into four sections of two verses each, beginning with verses 1 and 2. And I want you to notice a couple of things here in verse 1. The Bible says, Lord, and notice when David has the issue, when he's in distress, when he is in probably what I would think would be one of the lowest points of his life. Look where he turns. He doesn't turn to his friends. He doesn't turn to the world. He doesn't turn to his wise counselors. He turns to the Lord God. Because he understood and he knew from experience over throughout his life that the answer to the problems of life do not lie in the logic or the reasoning or the philosophies of men. But it lies in the strength and the power of Almighty God Himself. And he starts this psalm by addressing God, and he says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? We find that uh, he is uh, expressing his grief to God. I've got three things that I've written down here regarding this. First of all, he was right to do so. I don't know how many times I've caught myself when problems have arisen in life that I have tried everything I could to fix the problem. And having done all that I could, then I went to the Lord and said, Lord, I can't do this. And I like what somebody said years ago. He said, oh, that God would be the steering wheel rather than the spare tire." That we would come to Him at the first, at the onset. Here He is laying His troubles at the feet of the Lord Jesus. God Himself. He's telling Him of His trouble, His sorrow, His problems, and He's right to do so. I want you to also notice the manner with which He brings it to the Lord. I think this is important. He doesn't come with bitterness. He comes just stating the fact. As he says, Lord, how are they that in, uh, that uh, uh, Lord, how are they that in, increase that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Notice this: many there be that which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. And then there's this word selah. Selah is a is a musical term uh, that was used in the Hebrew language, and oftentimes it just meant to pause there for a moment, wait, think on it, meditate on what you just heard. And here the, the psalmist is crying out. I asked you early on to look at the exclamation point. The manner with which he came to the Lord again. I would say this was a manner of absolute dependence upon God for the answer. Isn't it wonderful to know that we can come to God and expect that He hears and answers prayer? <coughs> I'm reminded of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee as the storm came up. And the Bible says that Jesus was in the, the hull of the ship, in the bow of the ship, and was asleep. And they went and woke him up in the midst of it. And this storm was about to overtake them. And they go down and 
They wake him up. That says something about our Lord anyway, doesn't it? That he could sleep in the middle of the storm. He wasn't worried about it. That storm had to bow to his command. And they go down, they wake him up, and they, they say, Lord, save us, for we perish. Exclamation point. There's a crying out to God. There's a fervency. There's a, let me say it this way. There's a desperation in it. An absolute dependence of, Lord, if you don't solve this problem for me, it's not going to be solved. And I will say this, that it is one of the greatest acts of strong faith to cry out to God with absolute dependence that He is the only one that can solve this problem. This is where the psalmist is. His heart is broken. He, uh, he notices the multitude of his enemies. Notice the Bible says here in verse number 2, it says, Many there be which say of the Lord, uh, say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, Selah. Verse number 1, Many are they that rise up against me. He understood the multitude of his enemies and the very fact that these enemies, according to the passage we read in 2 Samuel 15, were multiplying. They were increasing and the hearts of the men of Israel were being given to Absalom by the droves. And you can imagine David's mindset as he watches this. I would say it this way. It was probably enough at the very first of the problem to see that God was bringing David lower, that David was being brought low. Just the fact that his own son had decided to rise up against him, that was a big enough problem. And I believe the desperation would have been there in spite of this, but when you begin to think of the fact that they're increasing against him, these enemies of his are, are increasing day by day, moment by moment. It's getting worse and worse. And you can put yourself in David's situation for a minute here. He's looking at this thing saying, I don't see any way out of this. It's, instead of getting better, it's getting worse. I, don't, I, just, I just don't see how it can get any worse. And then he wakes up the next morning. And if it couldn't have gotten any worse, it did. Can you imagine his heart? I'll say this. Sometimes when we read the story of Absalom's rebellion, we get the mindset that David and Absalom had an estranged relationship as father and son. But... That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that David loved Absalom. He cherished him. He was a prized son. Could you imagine the heart of a father to see that kind of a turn and rebellion in his own son? The one that he had loved and cherished. It was enough that the circumstances demanded him to have some sorrow, but when it was added multiple, multiple times upon top of that, the sorrow added to sorrow. Sorrow on top of sorrow. Ahithophel, a young man that he had taken into his own household and treated him with great, great kindness and love, turned on him, followed Absalom. His counselors, his generals, his faithful men, the soldiers that had served under him and at one time had cried, Saul hath slain his thousands, but David hath slain his ten thousands. Turned against him. Are you getting the picture here? This isn't just a, a normal, ordinary sorrow, that a speed bump in the road of life, if you will. This is 
a sorrow that brings you to the point of wearying of life. So great was the grief that I believe, as the Apostle Paul said, that he had grown weary of life itself, that it was beyond strength. He couldn't cope with it. This is the sorrow David finds himself in. Then we come to verse number 3. I love verse number 3. But isn't it always good when the problems of life are there, but then there's a but? Notice what it says here. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. probably one of the greatest attacks that his enemies could ever give was not that Absalom had rebelled against him. It wasn't the greatest part of the attack was not that Ahithophel had returned against or turned against him or that his generals or that his soldiers or his counselors had turned against him. Probably the greatest attack that brought David the most woe was the accusation these people were throwing to him in verse number 2 when they said, there is no help for him in God. But notice it did not deter David. David said, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. I've said this so often before. Anytime you come with the word O in our Psalms or in the Scriptures, it's an exclamation of emotion. And one commentator put it this way, The only way we can describe it or give an equivalent to it is that they are so overwhelmed with the emotion of the thought that the O is almost like a groan. It's almost like there's a there's a, a moaning and a groaning of emotion here. And he says, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. And he heard me. <laughs> oh, what a wonderful, wonderful statement. He heard me out of His holy hill. Charles Spurgeon, in his comments on this passage, in verses 2 and 3, he made this statement. He said, If all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations that ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from the earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in the verse that is the most bitter of all afflictions, to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. But David said, But Thou, O Lord, art my shield, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. You get the picture, David's head is hung low in sorrow. I am certain the tears flowed freely. I'm certain that there were those he would talk with that he still had around him and said, I don't understand it. But Thou, O Lord, art my shield. And notice what he says, My glory, he knew that God was eventually going to restore him back to the kingdom. He had faith to believe that God, when He made His promise that His kingdom and His throne would be an everlasting kingdom and throne, that God was going to restore him back. And notice this, that David said, He is the lifter up of my head. What a statement. 
when I get to the place in my life where my head is hung low in sorrow and I feel like I don't even have the strength to lift it, the Lord is the lifter up of my head. David, by faith, looks upon God. It would be wonderful if you and I could have enough faith, enough grace in our life to see what God is going to do rather than what God is allowing to presently happen in my life. So often we get the mindset, and I shared with the fellas Friday night in the men's advance, we get the same mindset that Elijah had. In fact, let's take a look at that passage for a moment, if you will. Romans chapter number 11. I didn't have this in my notes, but we'll use it anyway. Romans chapter number 11, verse number 1. Paul is writing here, he says, I say then, hath God cast away His people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away His people, which He foreknew. Want ye not that the scripture, what the Scripture saith of Elias? Now, Elias is the New Testament name for Elijah, so you understand who he's talking about here. How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord... They have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars. And notice this phrase, and I am left alone and they seek my life. You ever been there? You ever felt like you're the last one and, Lord, you've, you've forsaken me and I just feel like I'm out here all of my own? And notice what God says in verse number 4. He answers Elijah. He says, but what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself... 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. And I tell you this, God is not taken by surprise by your enemies or your circumstances. And we can easily say as the psalmist did, But Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. He expresses his confidence in God in verse number three. He said, or verse number 4. He says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and here's David's confidence in this, and he heard me out of his holy hill. I like what it says in verse 4. It says, I cried unto the Lord, notice this phrase, with my voice. I understand and I know there are times that we pray silently to ourselves, inwardly to the Lord. But there's something about praying out loud. Even in, even in your own private prayer closets, there's a tendency to be more focused, to pray with more fervency, to avoid distractions of this world, and to just get alone with God. He lifts up his voice, and the confidence of David was, he heard me out of his holy hill. And then we see that word again, don't we? Selah. Take a minute, think on that. That the God of heaven, the absolute, holy, infinite, perfect God, would listen to an old sinner that needed His grace just to be saved. That God would hear us. 
The psalmist throughout his life was amazed at that. He wrote in another psalm, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy hands, thy moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man that thou visitest him? In other words, the psalmist said, When I consider who you are and I understand who I am, Lord, why do you even come and bother with us? And yet he has confidence that when he prays, God's going to hear him. Isn't that an amazing thing for a Christian to hold on to? That when I pray, I can have faith. I can be assured that God's going to hear my prayer. Verse number 5, I love this. It says, I laid me down and slept. Boy, talk about some faith. I mean, David is in probably the darkest point of his life, in turmoil. Everyone he felt had forsaken him. Even his enemies said, there's no help in God for you. He was so confident in God and His faithfulness to him that the Bible says, I have laid me down and slept. I awaked for the Lord, what? Sustained me. He sustained me. The Apostle Paul was afflicted with what the Bible refers to as a thorn in the flesh. A lot of people have wondered what that was. I know what it was. It was a thorn in the flesh. And when you get to heaven, Paul can describe it a little more clearly than that. But there's no reason to speculate. I do know that the Bible goes on to say that it was a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Three times he prays to the Lord. Not because he didn't think God heard him, but because of the fervency and the desperation of the need that he found himself in. He said, Lord, take this thorn from me. Three times he prayed and asked that it would be taken away. You remember what Jesus told him, what God told him? He said, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I tell you this, if it takes me becoming weaker through problems and circumstances of life, for God's strength to be perfected in me, then Lord, help me to be weak. The Apostle Paul went on to say, For when I am weak, then am I strong. Why? Because of your strength, Paul? No. Because when I'm weak, God can perfect His strength in me. The psalmist, having confidence in the Lord, said, I laid me down to sleep. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. Notice verse 6. He goes on with his confidence statement. He says, I will not be afraid. And I want you to notice this about this statement. He does not underestimate the problem. Notice his phrasing here. He says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. He's getting ready to rise up. He's getting ready to defend his throne. He understands the predicament that he's alone, that there's very few that are going to side with him. And he looks at the enemy 
And he says to God, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me around about. David certainly has confidence in the Lord, doesn't he? How often when we get in trials and troubles of life, we are brought low and it seems like we want to quit, we want to give up, we want to turn away, we want to flounder, we just want to say, Lord, I just can't take any more of this. Wait a minute. I don't care if there's 10,000 of them. This is what David said. I'm not going to be afraid of it. You remember when David went to go visit his brothers as a young boy? They were at battle. The entire Israel army stood there for days afraid of the giant of the Philistines. David said, what shall be done to the man that killeth this this, this giant? His brothers ridiculed him, if you'll remember. They said, you've been naughty, you've left the sheep. You've abandoned the sheep and not been responsible, and you're here just to see the battle and what's going on. They ridiculed him. You know what the Bible says? David was not deterred by that. He went, and the Bible says this, He turned and spake after the same manner to another person. What shall be done to the man that killed this Philistine? Word got back to Saul. They looked at this little young man who was not even trained in battle. wasn't wasn't a warrior. He wasn't a, a strapping, strong man. Just a young shepherd boy. Remember when Goliath ridiculed him and laughed at him and mocked him and said, I'm going to feed you to the birds? And he told Goliath, he said, You come unto me with the sword and the shield, but I come unto you. In the name of the Lord of hosts. Why? Because David knew he couldn't beat that giant, but he knew God could. David's sitting here at the darkest point of his life. His enemies multiplying and surrounding him and ten thousands of men rising up against him. And here he is getting ready to defend his throne. And he says, I will not be afraid of ten thousand people that have set themselves against me round about. David knew from experience never to attempt a battle without praying first. And so after having made his statement of confidence and faith in the Lord, he begins to pray. In verse number 7, he says, Arise, and here's that word O again, O Lord, save me, O my God. For Thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. David begins to pray. He knows that his only hope in this battle is going to be if God fights it for him. David's confidence, his view of God, is expressed in that he believed that God needed only to arise. Look at what he's praying for. Verse number 7, Arise, O Lord. He doesn't, tell him to, he doesn't ask God to fight for him. He says, Just, just arise, Lord. Jesus on that Sea of Galilee with His disciples comes to the bow of the ship. He speaks to the wind and the waves. He says, Peace, be still. And I know the wind can't talk, but if it could, it would have said, Yes, sir. And I know the waves can't think and have conscious thought, but if they could, they would have said, Yes, sir. Why? Because God has it under control. 